This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. For me growing up, the two major things were embarrassment and depression would make me go, boom, right to anger. And then I would fight. I started liking the fact that people were nervous around me. I would walk into a bar and I would honestly get off on the fact that some people were intimidating because they'd be like, which Eddie are we going to get? Are we going to get happy-go-lucky Eddie or are we going to get miserable things to get a couple of drinks in them and be violent Eddie? I wasn't suicidal, but in a way I was because like I had this whole fixation of going out on my shield. If I'm going to die, let it be on the street fighting. Teddy Kingston, the macho, no-bullshit character he plays on TV as a pro wrestler, is actually no character at all. It's him, at 17 years old. Growing up in Yonkers, New York, in a half-Irish and half-Puerto Rican household, Eddie didn't fully fit in anywhere. He was a target of racism and bullying, and building a reputation as the neighborhood tough guy was how he dealt with it. The only thing that could quiet the noise was watching the wrestling grades battle it out on TV and dreaming of being in the ring. In 2020, he got his big break and signed with AEW, but 18 years in the independent circuit took a mental and physical toll. After falling into a depression, Eddie sought out therapy to unpack the roots of his anger. From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindsided. Mental health, sports, and life. What was it like, Eddie, growing up in your house? Uh, I had a great father and a great mother. They tried their best. (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh, I learned loyalty from my father. It's a story, you know, my dad's a recovering alcoholic, and one day my mother told me with her, when she was pregnant with my brother, and she had me in her arms, and she told my father, you drink again, I'm leaving, and he's been clean ever since, and... I couldn't believe it, even into my 20s. I would ask him, did he ever relapse? And it was no. So I learned loyalty from him. I learned how to treat your, you know, your significant other. I remember a couple times me and my mother would get into arguments, of course, and she's a strong-willed Puerto Rican woman, so she would get in my face. I never hit her, but I, one time I put my hands on her to get her away from me, and, uh, I'd never forget it. My dad ran up these stairs quicker than I've ever seen him run before in his life. And he tackled me on the floor and said, she was my wife before she was your mother. Don't ever touch her again. So things like that I learned, you know, like I'm your father, not your friend. They had to be hard on me because that's the only way I would listen. If you talk nicely to me, I would just roll my eyes and be like, "Uh uh-huh, whatever. But if you were stern, you had to get in my face. I would be like, oh, it's serious. But, uh. You know, my first hero was my Uncle Kevin, who uh, just passed away, I think, two years ago from uh, complications from COVID. He was like my first hero, but he was the playboy. So I learned how to, (laughs) you know, I guess, you know, date different women. But he was the playboy of the the group, and he played football. He got me into that, baseball, basketball. He did all sports, had all these trophies. And so he was my hero, and all my uncles were— you know, they were rough Irish men, 
you know, from the Bronx, Catholic Irish from the Bronx, as they used to always tell me. And they were just tough on you, and the, and they taught you lessons, you know. I wouldn't tr trade it for the world. The the Puerto Rican side was all female. And so one minute, I, you know, I had the side of, you know, yeah, you, you fight everybody, you, you do what you have to do to survive. And then the female side's like, everything's okay, life is grand, be nice, treat this woman like this and that. And it's, I got both sides of everything. So, but both sides were very strong strong-headed, strong-willed, and they wouldn't let any of their kids or anybody get anything over them. So I learned that. Why do you think, Eddie, they had to be tough with you? Uh, I wouldn't listen. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I also had, uh, I had a lot of anger in me. And uh, I know it through therapy, by the way. Through therapy, I found out where it stemmed from. And growing up a mixed kid, I'm Irish and Puerto Rican, during the time period I grew up, being mixed wasn't looked on positively, let's say. So I learned racism in second grade when I was being called a spick. And then, like I said, my family, and I've said it before, are all recovering from drugs or alcoholism. You know what I mean? They all had to fight it. You know, thankfully, right now, everybody's clean and sober, knock on wood. Let's keep it like that, you know? But, uh... You know, my uncles had a history in the neighborhood. And I'll never forget, again, second grade, it was a real big turning point for me in my life. You know, being told, parents telling their kids not to hang out with me because I'm going to be like my uncles. So I remember the day I went home crying about it. And I said, well, if they want a black sheep, well, I didn't use the words black sheep. I was in second grade. But basically, if they wanted me to be bad, I was going to be the baddest kid they've ever seen. So then I just became angry, and I was the first, And then I learned how to use my hands boxing-wise uh, in sixth grade. And instead of using that discipline for good, I was like, oh, now I can just punch people in the face as soon as they say anything. And now I know how to punch. So that's why, you know, I was just an angry kid, so that's why they had to be rough on me, you know what I mean, to let me know that I wasn't really that tough. I may be tough around the kids I grew up with, but not with my family. You say you remember back even in second grade. Have you ever talked to your mom about whether you changed? Because you remember becoming an angry kid. Do you think you popped out of the womb angry? Or do you think that when you faced racism, you faced the history of your family and how people looked at you, that that was the thing that changed? Uh, I wouldn't say that. My mom jokes around that I came out of the womb angry. She likes you to joke came out with like, your dukes up? Well, she said I came out with like a real mean look, like, why am I here? And <laughs> I can actually believe that because, you know, it, it, it's funny to me. The thing I don't like to do is when I'm home from being on the road, if anything bothers me, anything. It could, like the other day, the AC broke and I had to go and fix it. And I was so annoyed that I was bothered. So I could definitely believe me coming out of the womb, just, you know, a little bothered and, you know, PO'd. But uh, no, I was a hyper kid, you know what I mean? Growing up, I just wanted to play. I wanted to run around. And my uncles, as a joke, used to give me chocolate right before I would have to oh. go home when they were watching me. And my mother would just curse them up and down because there I am at 7 o'clock at night running around like a madman still. But uh, I was hyper. But the thing that kept me calm to go back to what I do for, you know, professionally for a living was pro wrestling. 
So my mother found something that kept me calm, so she just bought massive amounts of tapes just to sit me down for at least three hours. Do you remember the first time you got in a fight? I remember the first time I did. It was in the fifth grade, and she was tough, Eddie. She was tough. <laughs> but well, do you remember yeah. your first fight and what that felt like when you were a kid? I I don't remember the person, but I do remember the feeling. And the two feelings I remember the most was, first, I was satisfied. Like, yeah, I got him. But that switched, like, two seconds in to regret. You know what I mean? Like, two seconds in, it just it went from, yeah, that's what you get for saying whatever you're saying. And then it felt like a second later. Maybe it wasn't, but, like, a second later was, oh, man. Yeah. Why did I do that? How old were you? Uh, I had to say about sixth grade. So I, I don't know exactly what age, but I, I do remember it was sixth grade. I do remember just feeling like, yeah, I finally got you picking on me or whatever it was. He was a bully? Yeah, yeah. But then it felt like a second later, before I got in trouble, like there was instant regret. Because I remember the girls in the schoolyard like screaming, like telling me to stop. And I guess me being a mama's boy, I heard that more than anything else. And that kind of made me have instant regret. Because I didn't want people to fear me. You know what I mean? I just wanted people to leave me alone. Eddie... You came out with your dukes up. You were a little yeah. bit grumpy. Who else in your family are you most like? Who who else has that frustration tolerance of zero, quick to get <laughs> frustrated and angry, a little bit of a temper thing? Who else? Well, it's, it's all my uncles from the Irish side all have a temper. My dad doesn't really have a temper, but when he goes off, it takes days for him to stay calm. But uh, I'm more like my Uncle Billy. He's very very quick on the trigger for him i think it was because he was the shortest one out of all the brothers maybe a little napoleon complex maybe but he was always quick on the draw and me and him have fought a couple times <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> and it's always around always around thanksgiving and christmas for some reason one of us would say something and then we're at each other's throats but it's it's love that's another thing i learned from my family no matter how much you don't like each other you're still family you know what I mean? And you still help each other out. Like, I remember my Uncle Billy getting in trouble and, and my aunt, his sister, didn't really like him that much. But as soon as he got in trouble, she was the first one there to help him out. Of course, she would let him know that she was the first one there, but she was still there, you know. So I know you focused a little bit in your article on a lot of fighting. Your dukes were up a lot. Yeah. And some people do that for different reasons, and I know Corey is going to want to ask you from his own experience as an elite athlete, but do you remember what that was like? You talked a little bit about it when the girls around you kind of screaming, you're going, I don't want people to be afraid of me. Was it scary to have to fight all the time or to be that fighter, or was it something that you got a little bit jazzed from? In the beginning, I didn't want to be that, but the only reason why people would hang out with me at points in time would be because I was a fighter. And they would just ask me to come out when they were fighting. Or they would always know to be around me because Eddie's stupid enough to fight. Then I started liking the fact that people were nervous around me. I liked the, I started liking the fact that, yeah, maybe I did intimidate some people. And that lasted a very long time, that bad habit of liking that. You know what I mean? To the point where it lasted into my 30s where I would walk into a bar and I would honestly 
get off on the fact that some people were intimidating because they'd be like, which Eddie are we going to get? Are we going to get happy-go-lucky Eddie or are we going to get miserable that he's going to get a couple of drinks in him and be violent Eddie? And, you know, I liked it because it kept people away because I didn't trust people. You know what I mean? And I didn't want to even give people uh, a chance. Like, even nowadays, I have a very small, small group of friends. And that's just because I still don't really trust people that much. Where do you think that comes from? That definitely stems from the second grade. People telling me something's wrong with me because I'm half Hispanic. Like, I had a choice in that. Or I'm half Irish, you know what I mean? Like, I had a choice in that. And, you know, one minute a kid's nice to you, then the next day he's calling you a spick because he wants to be part of the crew. That's making fun of you. So I'd be like, okay, that's it. I'm not trusting none of y'all. And uh, honestly, I had one, like I had a bunch of associates, but I had one really close friend and this kid uh, this kid named Pete. It's funny, anytime I see him, it's like we pick up where we left off all these years ago. He was the only one that knew I wrote poetry. He was the only one that knew how I really truly felt. You know what I mean? That like after fights, I would cry because I didn't, I didn't like it. Is this who I'm supposed to be for the rest of my life? You know, the local tough guy. You know, and I didn't want that. But I didn't know how to go on any other way to do it. You know what I mean? As a teenager, you think that's it. This is your life. This is your square you're going to live in. And that's it. So he was there for me, and he saw the real side of me. So you, you, didn't, you didn't like fighting. I know some guys that just, they get off on it. It's that adrenaline. They like getting punched in the face. It just, it gets them going. But you, it sounds like you didn't. You didn't like it. You sound like a very empathetic, um, kind guy under, underneath all that, but it, that exterior had to be tough where you grew up in. Yeah, and, like, at first I loved it, but then as time went on, I just, I just didn't want to be known as that. And then it started just making me sick. I felt like I had nothing else but that. You know what I mean? Fighting. And it wasn't like I was a good fighter either, street fighter. I just swung and bit and scratched and clawed and... <laughs> Did what I had to do because I didn't want to get embarrassed. You fight like I do. Dirty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to me, there's no rules on the street, so I don't know what where this dirty comes from. But that was always my thing. And then as I got older, just when I wanted to relax and chill out, it, it wasn't me, supposedly, people would say. Or people didn't even want to give me that chance to calm and sit down and just relax and hang out with girls. You know what I mean? And... Not fight. I played with a guy named Dave Babich, and he's a big bear of a man. And I asked him why he didn't fight when I played with him. I'm not trying to compare hockey to what you did, but um, he said he hit a guy so hard in one of his first fights and knocked him out he didn't sleep for a month. Now, did you ever feel like that when you absolutely just, you know, hit someone One time. Hard? Yeah. Yeah, it was one time, and it was, uh, it was a kid who actually I thought we were friends. He made fun of me. It was a joke, but I didn't take it as a joke. And we were fighting, and I just remember hearing the sound of my knuckles hitting his skin, and I almost threw up. I kept fighting, of course, but I, I just it was just yeah. a sound I didn't like. Uh, fighting, like, you asked, like, do I like fighting? I like it when I'm in the ring. I like it when I, I've had two Muay Thai fights. I like that. I like, I've had, I've boxed before. I like that. So I, I like the athleticism. I like the combat of it. But out in the street, it's a different world because you don't know who has what. You know what I mean? Or who, And my biggest fear is everyone thinks like me. 
So that everyone's just trying to survive and will do anything to survive and not get embarrassed in the fight. I've learned if a guy has cauliflower type ears, you just stay right away from him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get my ass kicked. Yeah, I learned that a, a long time ago when I first <laughs> broke in the business. I said, oh, yeah, those are the guys you stay away from. Eddie, something you said, you said eventually guys wanted you to hang out with them because Eddie's dumb enough to fight. And that, that's saying something when someone's referring to themselves in that way. Where does that come from? Do you, do you think that you were dumb or seen as dumb growing up or that there was something wrong with you in that way? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now I know nothing's wrong with me. It's just what is what it is. This is who I am. And whatever I have to fix that I think, that's what's important is what I think I have to get better at. Not even fix, get better at, because words have power. What do I have to get better at to be a better human being and actually love myself? I'll do. But back then, no, I hated myself. I hated that I was Irish and Puerto Rican. I hated that I was a fighter. I hated people around me. Because I hated myself so much that it just projected out. Also thinking I was never good enough for anything was always a, always a big thing. And that lasted into my 20s, late 20s, where I would think I wasn't good enough, so I didn't. I would mess up on purpose. There were many times during my wrestling career out on the independence where I would be on a roll. I'd be every weekend, three, four shows every weekend, big independent companies taking their chance on me, blah, blah, blah. Then I would just have a moment of, okay, I don't deserve this, without even knowing. Somewhere in the back of my mind that would be said, and then I would go on a drinking binge and miss shows. You know, not get on a plane or be in the drunk tank and miss a show. And then I would have to start off at square one again. And it was because it was of myself, not loving myself and not thinking that I deserve what I have. And there's still days like this. There's still days. When people read the article or hear me talk, I don't ever want them to think that I'm cured or whatever. I'm never going to be cured. This is who I am. And I love that I know that now. And I love that I, I'm learning how to get better at loving myself. But it's an everyday struggle because I don't like attention. And I'm in the pro wrestling business out of all things. But I just don't like attention. So that, you know, do I deserve this attention? There's moments. You know what I mean? There's moments where I get like that. But... You know, I fight through it, and I cope with it, and I move on because I learned, uh, you know, after all these years on earth, you know, you got to move forward. That's youth, it. Youth is wasted on the young, right? All yes, that we learned, yes. and you think, oh, I wish I knew. Well, I'd like to understand because certainly we want to learn more about your life on the road and what's yeah, sure. led along, but you found a little world, a respite, a place where you could be— it sounds like just totally in love with your your sport, but why? What was it about that experience, and what did it represent for you watching wrestling and how you spent your time, so much time doing that? What did that all mean to you? Wow, that's a deep question. Professional wrestling's always been there. It was it's the first thing that actually stopped me from running around like a madman and give my mother a break. Everything in my life has always changed, but not pro wrestling. You know what I mean? It was always there, whether it was on TBS, TNT, or it was the WWE Monday Night Raw. It was always on Mondays. You know, it was always there. And I grew up during a time period in wrestling where it was a boom. 
You know, and some people call it the Attitude Era. That was just for WWF, but it was a big boom around 96, 97. And there was just so much good wrestling and good stories being told that someone who was already a fan of it already loved it. Of course, I got sucked right back into it, and I was just stuck. And the, the characters and the athletes in it just had me, especially all Japan pro wrestling in the 90s. That grabbed me by my throat and just was like, You're, this is what pro wrestling is. Uh, yeah, I grew up with Stu Hart in the dungeon there you go. and Stampede Wrestling. So we used to yep. watch that all the time. And uh, Dynamite Kid, Oh, man. man, they were athletic. Hey, like yep. they would just fly around. And, you know, something that, and then maybe I'm getting a little off topic here, but it, a lot of them are gone now. And that's scary yeah. to me. That That's really scary to me. Um, and like I said, they were so athletic and so fun to watch. I love those guys. But, um, you know, I don't know what I'm asking here, really, but it just, it's it scares me with wrestling. Like, what what is it that we need to do or we need to change for these guys? Uh, well, back then, they were taking a lot more risks. Yeah. Uh, back then, they were doing a lot more harder things outside of wrestling, which, you know, growing, you know, being in the business at 20, I caught the tail end of that stuff. Our generation has now left that all behind. And Good. the generation after me and the generation after me, we see the stories. We've seen all of, all of our favorites pass away way too early in their lives. We've all lost a bunch of friends in this business because they decided to go a certain route. And we've all learned from it. Yeah, you know, you may hear things like, oh, this generation is not tough or whatever. First off, if you think that, you can come see me. But... <laughs> Uh, because why we don't go out and snort anything? Why? Yeah. Because we don't have to carry guns around to protect ourselves that we're not tough? Or uh, just because we'd rather hang out with our friends and be safe and play a video game instead of going to a bar trying to start a fight? You know what I mean? Things have to change because it wasn't working before because we lost too many greats who, in all honesty, should still be here today yeah. getting their flowers. You know what I mean? Like, it, it it sucks that guys like Terry Bam Bam Gordy can't get his flowers now, right now alive. Yeah. That, that, we, that we can't, yeah, we can't express to him how great he was and how inspirational he was. You know what I mean? He's just one of many. He's just the first one I thought about. But there's so many more. So, yeah, it's either we had to change or we were going to do the same thing and be another cautionary tale about it so people can knock my generation or the gen generations after me they can knock it all they want but we're going to be alive to tell our story and that sucks to say that sucks to say but it's the truth you talked about depression being a challenge for you at times and every brain is unique every experience with mental illness is unique so i, I want to ask you first of all what depression meant for you and when you first were aware, and maybe it was just looking back and thinking I was depressed then, but when you first realized that you probably had depression, you had that experience. Really about 18 years old, I was seeing a therapist, and the therapist was like, look, you get, you know, paraphrasing here, folks. He was just like, yeah, you're, you're depressive, you know, and first you get depressed, and then you get angry, because I learned over the years, anger is a secondary feeling. There's always something before anger. It's not like we just go straight to anger. There's something before it. For me, growing up, it was 
the two major things were embarrassment and depression would make me go, boom, right to anger quicker than usual. Uh, so I say about 18, 19, I finally realized that, that, you know, speaking to my therapist, I also was going to a secondary school because I got kicked out of my high schools and I had to go there to finish school. But they also had therapy sessions and stuff like that. And, you know, that's where they were like, hey, you may have to go on medication. And I was open to it because I was like, all right, whatever. Whatever makes my mother happy was like, it was a big thing for me. By that point, because I got kicked out of two schools for fighting. And I remember her crying after the second school kicked me out. While she's hitting me in the back of my head, yelling and screaming, she's crying in the car. And I remember saying to myself that day, okay, never again. You know what I mean? And tr trust me, I did make her cry again, but I tried my best not to. But that was really a, a big turning point for me. So like certain decisions like, yeah, we're going to put you on medication. Instead of me fighting it like I usually would, I looked at my mother. She looked like it was a good thing. I said, all right, Ma, I trust you. I love you. Let's go. And, you know, it's helped. So for you, depression means anger. What else comes with depression? Because sometimes people uh, don't eat at all, and some people eat too much. Some people yeah. can't sleep. People, others sleep all the time. So what, what does depression look like for Eddie? I eat everything, and I sleep all day. And I don't want to be around nobody. I don't want to talk to nobody. I don't want no one knowing anything. You know what I mean? If people call me, I won't answer. If I do pick up by mistake, it's, how you doing? I'm good. I got to go. I'm, uh, I'm going to go. I got to take a shower. Yeah. Some excuse. You know what I mean? Some, anything, anything. And I'm not trying to be too crash. Usually it's, I got to go to the bathroom where I'll say. So. Yeah. I've been there, but, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you just want to get off. You don't want to talk to nobody. You want to be alone. And my father used to call it sitting in your own shit. And I used to love it. I used to just sit in it and just, then I would get angry. Did you find there was, uh, sometimes when I get depressed, I find there's a, a weird comfort in it. And I don't want, I, I want to get out of it, but I, I just want to lay there and I just want to. Yeah. Do you, you feel like that at times? Oh, yeah. Yeah, all the time. Every mm -hmm. Anytime I get like that where I get depressed and I start, it's almost like I start sinking into that depression and becoming it. Like be physically becoming what what is bothering me. Like I'll start hunching, I'll start. Like, my body language would tell you how I'm feeling. I'm hunching over. I'm not looking nobody in the eye. Head's always down. It comes out in a physical form. Physically, you look, then, you look depressed. Yeah. But you use the word comfort, Corey, and I just, if I can explore that for one moment, mm -hmm. is it comfort with the depression or it's just too hard to do anything else? So I'm just going to sit in it because I can't get myself to do anything else. I think that's how it starts. I learned a long time ago that you have to do uncomfortable things to move on in your life. And that's what happens with depression is where you just get so comfortable because you're used to that pain. You're used to that depression. You're used to eating yourself stupid or sleeping all day or drinking yourself stupid or whatever it is because you don't want to do anything uncomfortable because then your comfortableness is gone. Your depression may be gone. You never know, may be gone. But you have to do uncomfortable things to move on. And that's when we have to pull ourselves up out of that depression that we're used to and, and move on and talk to people and, 
deal with it head on than instead of running away from it and sinking into it. And that's easier said than done, of course. I love that you talked about medication. Eddie, I am still here because of medication. And there's people that's that... That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and there's people... Well, thank you. There's people that... Um, there's a stigma on meds. And, yeah. and I, I'm out there talking, trying to change that. I, I've got two choices. I can either be here and try to have the best life I can, or I can roll the dice and not be on meds. And why Why do we get punished? I, you didn't ask for your depression, and, and so no. neither did I. I didn't say to the universe, hey, give me this or that, just no more than someone gets asked for cancer or something else. So why do we get punished for our brains not being perfect and needing some help? And I... I don't, I don't understand that, and I want to thank you for saying that because, <laughs> hey, if you don't need it, yeah, that's great. But if you I'm do, happy for you if you don't need it. I'm absolutely. very happy for God bless you. Honestly, yeah. God bless you. But if you need it, let's go. It's there's nothing changing. wrong with it. Yeah, there's no such thing as normal, man. No such thing because we're all different. Our brains are different. We're all raised different. We all have different experiences that may traumatize us. Either way, it shapes us, whatever the experience is. I tell people all the time, look, I'm on Zoloft. When I'm not on it, I get annoyed real quick. I'm very edgy. You don't want to see that side. Not even that. I don't want to see it because that's not me. We as men don't. It's like, no, I'm not taking meds. There's that still yeah. like tough guy mentality. I don't need meds. If you, it makes me a better person around people, right? Like you just yeah. said. You know, I try and fight the stigma of medication myself. Yeah, I, I, to me, I know there's a stigma behind it, but I never let that bother me. Because I'm comfortable in a certain way of who I am. You know what I mean? There's always, this, like I said, I, I always be careful with what I say because I don't want anyone to ever think, oh, Eddie's just fine. No, I'm, I'm comfortable with who I am, but I'm still learning more stuff to be comfortable with. You know, but I have no problem saying I'm on medication, saying that I need help. Because if I didn't say that, I, I know for a fact I would be dead or in jail. Because I would have, my anger would have got the best of me, and I would have ran into the wrong guy, and they would have either took me out or I would have been in so much trouble there was no way for me to. I would have been sitting in Rikers or Sing Sing right now if it wasn't for help. Eddie, I'm and glad I have no you're problem here. for that. I'm glad. Thank you're you, here, brother. Man. I'm glad I, you're here, I'd brother. Give you a hug right now if I could. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all about it. The best way to overcome stigma is just not to buy into it. To be brave. You, you two are both very courageous because the st stigma you. lives out there. And and by saying, I just don't accept that. I am here because of this and I need this. Eddie, can you talk a little bit about, because I read, and I can't imagine how your body continues to put <laughs> up with the rigors of wrestling, but I, I got the whole pain medication situation and where that comes from and how that, and especially the way we were using opioids. But alcohol was interesting because you're like, why am I wasting my time with this? I just like to drink. Tell me about alcohol for you, the love of alcohol and how that's changed over time. Uh, I don't think I ever really loved alcohol. I just knew that it would numb me. It wasn't fun being hungover, and it wasn't fun having to drink pain away. And it wasn't fun trying to drink to forget because you never do. It just gets worse. You know what I mean? And, and that to me is the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So every time I drank, I expected to forget, knowing that it was just going to make it worse. To me, alcohol was a bad, bad escape from reality. And 
then I would get, again, anger. Anger was always there, always around the corner. And then I would fight. I wasn't suicidal, but in a way I was because, like, I wanted to go out. I had this whole fixation of going out on my shield. If I'm going to die, let it be on the street fighting. You know what I mean? All this tough guy stuff. You know, I've definitely grown past that now, but back then and the alcohol would fuel that mentality. Aren't they the worst lies, the ones we tell ourselves? Yeah. It's going to take those thoughts away. I'm going to feel better. I'm going to be... You're looking for the positive in something that you know damn well is not going to deliver, but you keep telling yourself that. So what happened with alcohol? I just got tired of it. To be honest with you, I got tired of it and I got older. And after... You know, and hangover, I used to never get hangovers. Mm-hmm. And then when I, then I would get one and it would last a day. Then it would last two. Then it would last three. Then it would last four days. And so one point it was the whole week. Also, alcoholism running in my family, I got scared. I got scared that I was going to go down this path. And I got scared that I wasn't as strong as my uncles and my father who could stop. So I got scared about it. You know what I mean? And... I just decided, you know what, I'm done. You know what I mean? And now I I can have one drink, but it's sociable. And I know to sit on that drink and just wait the whole night out with that one drink. And I'm good. What I found scary when I was drinking is I didn't get hungover anymore, and I didn't really get drunk. And then you you can just pound beer after beer after beer, and it it does get scary. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's... Uh, but I was I was covering something up. So once I stopped drinking, I started to heal. And that's yeah. when I started to heal. Did you find that yourself? Yeah, I started noticing people wanted to be around me more. I started liking myself more. That's more important than anything. I keep mentioning, I learned, uh, again, through therapy and, and other things, that I'm important. I have to help myself. And I have to put myself first sometimes. So with, you know, the alcohol and stuff like that, when I stopped, I felt better first. And because I felt better about myself, other people started coming around and wanting to hang out and wanting to talk and wanting to know who I was. Not just, hey, let's have a drink. Let's see Eddie get drunk. And hopefully he doesn't fight. Again, I felt more comfortable with who I was and who I am. And I'm still learning about who I am every day. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a weird thing. Every day I find I go, wow, okay. You've talked about having panic attacks. And again, different for everyone. But it sounds yeah. like anxiety has played a role for you in your life journey. Can you talk about the impact of anxiety on your life and what, you, what you're living with now from an anxiety perspective? Well, from when I was younger, I would just hyperventilate a lot. Because I would get so angry, whatever the situation was. Again, if you notice, I went right to anger as quickly as I could because that was comfortable to me. You know what I mean? Punching and swinging and fighting was easy for me. So, of course, I went to that. But I used to get panic attacks because I just was so filled with the anger and I couldn't get it out. I would just start hyperventilating. Now, (laughs) it's just still that feeling of not... I still have that same feeling that I'm still that 14-year-old kid on the street corner that doesn't deserve this. I still get that feeling. And it's always after a big match. Or it's always after when people love what I did on TV. And I'm like, why? I'm just me. Why? Why? 
why should you care? Or why, why is that so good? It's not even that good. What are you talking? I couldn't accept it. And I'm still working on that. You know what I mean? Like, every time we do anything on AEW, I love it until I see the response. And it's funny, I've been blessed that a lot of it has been positive. But that positive stuff also still gets to me because I'm still working on me. I'm still working on to love myself. And one day, one day I'm hoping and praying and working on one day I, I hope I can say I'm satisfied of what I did in this life. And yeah, I was pretty good at it. You know, one day I'm hoping to get there. So that's where the panic attacks come because I start thinking I don't deserve it. And then I start hyperventilating. Then I start getting uncomfortable in my own skin. Uh, there was, thank God for my girlfriend, there was one time I was on the floor in the bathroom screaming that I don't deserve this. You know what I mean? And because like, I just felt guilty because I started thinking about things I did in my past and, you know what I mean? All this other stuff. And do I really deserve this? No, I don't. You know, then I started thinking of the people who told me I didn't deserve things. So then I was like, they're right. It's a whole snowball effect, which is true. Starts off with something little, then it starts going downhill. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you either hold it in or you let it out. And lucky that I have a girlfriend that's like, let it out. What are you doing? And she doesn't judge me for being who I am, being an emotional creature. You know what I mean? Because that's what I am. I'm an emotional creature, and I have no problem with that. Because I have to love it because it's me. And uh, I would just start screaming and yelling, hyperventilating, saying I don't deserve it. <clears throat> and she would be there to give me a hug. And then she would be like, hit up Homicide, my mentor in wrestling. She'd be like, hit him up. And he's a street guy, so I'll hit him up, and he'll talk to me in his street way. And it would get me back on track. Hey, does she have a sister, Eddie? Because I'm still looking for somebody that <laughs> no, <laughs> can no, say, hey, no. I, she sounds she amazing, a, man. Good for you. You know, man, I, I got very lucky. I got very blessed uh, that someone who is as wonderful as she is but also understands me. Uh, she's the second woman ever, to, a third woman outside of my mother and a female friend. But she's the third woman ever to make me feel like I'm a good person. And I, I can never give her enough for just that. It sounds like you've had an incredible therapy journey. Has it been smooth? Tell us a little bit about your experience with a therapist, because sometimes it's hard to find the right match. And maybe you were one of the lucky ones who got the right match right out of the gate. Oh, no, I didn't. No, I was... I don't want to be here. I don't need this. You're nuts. I'm not nuts. I'm out of here. A lot of those moments. Or when the therapist would say something I didn't want to hear, which was right, of course. But I didn't want to hear it, so I would just be like, ah, I'm done, and I would leave. Again, if you notice, every time I say this, it's always someone, a woman. But there's uh, two women who steered me in the right direction, and I trusted them, and uh, they know who they are. They were part of... One was a secretary, one was a, a social worker. But I gravitated towards them, and they gravitated towards me and showed me that people outside of your family could actually care. And they actually wanted to help. They had, no, they had nothing in this to gain, helping me at this time in my life. Yeah, that, that was very important to me. So it made me focus, and it made me 
try therapy more, and it made me open my ears more on top of that with my mother, of course. You know what I mean? It just, I didn't want to hurt them. That started off like that. I didn't want to hurt them. Then it became I wanted to help myself. You've you've had a lot of, it sounds like you've had a lot of people you love around you pass. Um, you talked about a friend that mm. reached out to you when you are having some really big issues, and that seemed to resonate with you. Now, let me get this straight. Now, that person took their own life as well, eventually. Is that what had happened? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, his name was, uh, and, it, yeah. and yeah. wrestling, his name was uh, Larry Sweeney. Me, him, and other guys have spent hours upon hours in car rides with each other. But me and him just seemed to click. And I would stay up with him all night while he was driving and or we would always call each other and it was always us talking to each other and we got to know each other know each other's families and we just became thick as thieves with each other and one time when i was going through i hate saying the word episode but when i was going yep. through it i wasn't talking to nobody the cell phone was off i wasn't picking up the phone i was missing shows and like i said he wrote me a letter saying that he felt like he just lost his best friend and that snapped me right back into it, you know? And then um, when he went through what he went through and, and took his own life, there was a lot of guilt there from me and a lot of other people that we couldn't help him. But we also realized we tried everything we could for him. And to me, I like to think there was just a demon in his mind that he couldn't beat. And the demon won that day. I had the I had a girlfriend that took her own life about three four years ago. Yeah. So it's a club I don't want to be in. Neither do you. And I'm, yeah, I just want to say I'm so sorry you went through that because I don't want anybody to go through that. I don't no, want anybody not, to get that to phone call. You know that phone call you get, and then the pain and the guilt afterwards. And, oh, it's um, the it's the worst. And same to you. You know, you get it. I get it. And like you said, the phone call is the worst. And I've gotten these phone calls from wrestling. When you know it's it's a sick wrestling thing, but you know when someone's passed away in wrestling, when you wake up and there's 15 missed calls and there's a bunch of text messages saying, are you okay? You already know right off the bat who passed away. And for me, when I saw those text messages, I didn't think it was him. And I just ignored the text messages and the phone calls. I, I just got up, so I just ignored it. And I went on Facebook and there was a picture that said, rest in peace, Larry Sweeney. And it was a picture of him chopping me. And I went, you got to be kidding me. And, you know, the, it still hurts to this day. April 11th just passed and it felt like, and it's been double digits on the years. I haven't kept count because I just didn't want to. But every day I think about that man. And every time I step in the ring, I think about that man. And every time I'm in the ring with anyone that knew him, I think about him. Anytime I'm in the ring with the referee, Bryce Remsburg, who, was, who named his son after Sweeney's real name, when I'm in the ring with him and we do anything together that's big in wrestling, we hug each other and we say it's for him. Like uh, when I got to wrestle in Queens in front of 20,000 people, uh, having my mentor homicide there, wrestling with my one of my closest friends, dearest friends, uh, Moxley, against uh, a legend like Suzuki and, and a great guy like Lance Archer. And we're all wrestling, and it's in New York, my hometown. Me and Bryce hugged afterwards, and first thing we said was, this was for him. And it's like that every time. So he left a real big impression 
on so many of us. And am I sad? Yeah, that he's not here. But I'm also the person that goes, there was a reason for it. I have to believe there was a reason for it. And uh, I will love him forever. It doesn't matter either way. <laughs> I still struggle believing there was a reason for that. But No, I know. I, I just do it for myself to keep my own mind on the straight and narrow because once I get into that, is there a reason? Is there not a reason? Once I start veering off, it's going to be a rough day. So I just try to stay on that lane of I know there has to be a reason. And it's just faith. It's blind faith. And I think everyone needs that, to be honest with you. Have some type of blind faith in something that will actually keep like your mind on the center, you know? And it's hard, though. It's hard because there's days where I don't want to do it. There's days where I want to get off the track and go nuts. You know what I mean? There's always days like that. He obviously saw your goodness being that <laughs> close friend. And, I mean, we can see just by talking to you this massive heart that you have. But you are really struggling with the love that you're getting from fans. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's like? And have you come to any kind of understanding of why that's so hard? No, not yet. I'm still trying to figure it out. Um I think it all stems from, again, from second grade and from that point on of never feeling that you're good enough or uh, waiting for the, the other shoe to drop. Like, I'm always waiting for something bad to happen. Or I'm waiting for me, which I was known for for years, for blowing it up myself. Where a lot of other wrestlers would tell you who knew me would be like, it, back in the day, it would just be, Give it some time, Eddie will ruin it for himself. Cause I and I would cause I would get in my own way. So yeah, there's always that fear that's there. So that's why I'm like, these people better not love me because I'm known for doing this and that. You know, and I'm I'm worried about it, so they shouldn't love me. My mother always told me I had a problem where I had so much love to give, but I never wanted to accept it back. And it's still like that because sometimes friends, close friends, would tell me thank you for whatever I did for him or whatever at that time. And I would tell them, don't thank me. This is what I was supposed to do. I'm your friend. Isn't this what I'm supposed to do? Don't thank me. And even people I don't like, and they know I don't like them. I'm pretty honest. They know I don't like them, but I'll help them with wrestling because I love wrestling and I don't want no one, A, to get hurt in the ring, and B, I don't want no one to hurt AEW or professional wrestling. So when I help someone, that that's what it's for. It doesn't matter if I like you or not. And they'll come up to me and be like, thank you, thank you. I'll be like, don't thank me. This is what I'm supposed to do. Like, I just don't like, I just don't like thank yous. You know what I mean? And it's just, it, it's, it is very hard for me to accept that love because they don't know me from my past. And I still have to forgive myself first for the for my past. And that's an everyday thing. I know that's an everyday thing, and I'm not going to be done f trying to forgive myself until I'm in the ground. I know I, I accepted that, but what I won't accept is not trying to forgive myself. I won't accept that anymore, you know, because if I just live in my past, then I'm never going to grow, and I would have never got to AEW if I didn't grow, and it took the pandemic and everything like that for me to be like, hey, snap out of it, grow up. Try your best instead of just wallowing in your own self-pity. I think you, you hit on one of the greatest gifts I've given myself in my life, which is forgiveness. And yeah. that I forgive for myself. 
I, I think that anger, that bitterness that you carry inside you, it actually rots the vessel it's in. And so yeah. I, I work to forgive because I don't want to carry around that weight. But it's really hard to forgive yourself if you don't value yourself. Yeah, that's the big lesson there. You have to value yourself, and it's not easy. I can sit here and tell you, yep, I love myself. I love myself right now. What, what time is it? Whatever time it is, I love myself right now at this moment. But you never know. Once I get off this thing, something may happen to piss me off or something may come up that puts me on that path of, you know, not loving myself. But I'm trying to work on it every day. Because if I don't love myself, then I can't love anyone else. And I can't help no one else. Brian Danielson told me this. He goes, we're in a position now where we can help others. So I have to work on loving myself so I can help others when it's time. Diane, from the get-go, Eddie was told that he's bad. And after he learned that, he kind of just said, fuck it. I'll be the baddest kid you've ever seen. He's always seemed to accept what people tell him. He is. Teachers said he was like a troublemaker. Kids loved that he'd fight anybody. At what point does a kid give in to those labels versus fighting against what others say they might be? I think if you're hearing that kind of thing from people in power, parents or teachers or older kids, eventually you start to wear it. And then what happened was he started to get benefits from that situation, from being that bad guy. He said, I got off intimidating people. It gave him some power in a situation where he felt quite powerless. He said, I can't control where I came from. I can't control my Puerto Rican roots, for instance. So that anger, that aggression actually created a barrier between him and other people because he didn't feel trust, which is what happens when you've been bullied, exposed to racism. And so being that tough guy made him feel safe. He just started to wear that as a, really, a shield against the racism, the bullying that he was experiencing. He became a bully as a result of being bullied. And there's kind of, I guess, a facade where, well, that's how people like me. So I'm going to just get into fights. And the more fights I get in, then maybe I'll be liked more. Is that a possibility as well? Well, because people did like him when he was the tough guy. They knew he would come out and be that tough guy. And so it was his way of creating friendships as well and maintaining a, a social position. Eddie said he had a panic attack on the bathroom floor from feeling like he doesn't deserve the good things that were happening to him. So now that he's getting praised for these things, Eddie's finding it hard to believe and it's making him really uncomfortable. Is this in a way an identity crisis? Well, if you're always viewing yourself in one way and now you're being viewed in a completely different light, sometimes it's really hard to reconcile those two Eddies in Eddie's own head. I'm a bad guy and people are thinking that I'm a great guy. So when you view yourself as being bad or unworthy or less than or dumb, which comes from Eddie's perspective, it sounds like from being exposed to racism, being exposed to bullying, it becomes a distorted lens through which you see the world. Now people are going, yay, Eddie, Eddie's fantastic. And he's going, wait a minute, I'm bad, I'm dumb, I'm all these bad things. 
this doesn't fit. And so I feel very uncomfortable with how to react to that. You find it hard to reconcile those two pieces of you. And that the panic attack is a symptom of the anxiety that comes from not knowing who you are, not being comfortable being viewed as something that you don't view yourself to be. It's almost like people are are not actually understanding who Eddie is, but it's not the Eddie Eddie wants to be. He said, you know, I like being a tough guy. I got stuff out of being a tough guy, but he also got a lot of negative from being that tough guy. And especially when when alcohol was involved, he became someone that he didn't like. So he's really conflicted about who's Eddie? Who does Eddie want to be? And the anxiety, the panic, is actually a reflection of what's going on in his head as he tries to sort that out. That's pretty common, though, with mental health. Like, I have issues with that, too, that a lot of times I don't deserve good things. And is that almost your—well, I think it is your brain lying to you. Really, it is. Why with mental health do people feel like they don't deserve good things? I find that very common with the people we talk to. So when when you're feeling depressed, and Eddie talked about his depression, what depression does is make you feel less than, unworthy. You're not a good person. You're hopeless. You're helpless. It's the lie that depression tells your brain. And it's the most terrible part of depression is diminishing you as a human being. It's really hard to battle against when you're depressed. You know, if I have a bad feeling about myself, I can usually confront it and say, okay, what's the evidence that supports that? Those are good cognitive behavioral therapy principles is what's the evidence that supports this bad thought that I have? When you're depressed, often you really struggle to use those cognitive skills to talk yourself out of it because your brain is unrelenting and saying, you're hopeless, you're useless, you're worthless. Eddie said he learned in therapy that anger is a secondary feeling, that it's always a product of something else. Do you agree with that? Well, I think Eddie was talking about in the context of being depressed that he expressed his sadness as anger. And that is actually very common, especially in younger men, that they can express their, what we look for generally, depression, as sadness. Actually, that anger, the very short fuse, is a very common way of expressing those depression symptoms. As well, anxiety, which feels horrible, it's oppressive, makes people short-tempered as well. So there's a whole lot of people who, when they're really feeling depressed or anxious, express that as anger. So that's something to look out for when you're worried about someone who's normally on a pretty even keel, who's suddenly very quick to get angry. Everyone should be thinking, what's going on here? Maybe they're struggling with with their mood or with anxiety. So with anger comes an adrenaline, though, too. Like if I get angry or say I got in a fight in hockey or whatever, there's an adrenaline to it that almost gets rid of the depression for a short time. Can that become addictive in a way? Yeah, I think that sometimes people don't know where their anger is coming from. When you know it's directed at this person did this thing and I'm angry about it and I want to express that anger because I don't want it to happen again, that's very different than just being angry all the time and having no idea why you feel that way. So never having been in the circumstance that you described, of having anger generally at everything, but that by lashing out, it kind of takes a little bit of the steam out of it. 
expressing anger just to release some of the steam, it's not long-lasting. You can see that right after that fight that you get in, when you blow off some steam, the anger just keeps coming back. So do all the other bad feelings. So that whole idea of, of go and do some screaming or hit each other to try to blow off steam, it doesn't change your thoughts. It doesn't change your feelings. That behavior is not very helpful in helping you to move forward. Eddie, what's the difference between Eddie's journey now? Because I I know that you still have that, I'm going down that bad path. I don't like how I'm feeling, right? But it sounds like 10 years ago, you were on that path constantly. Now you have the ability to pull yourself back or not to go down that those paths sometimes. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if no, that's no, the there, case— No, no, there's moments, yeah. <laughs> you're not in it all the time. How do you stop yourself from going down that path all the time? I talk. I talk now. I don't hold it in. I either, like I said, I talk to my mentor, Homicide, or I talk to my lady— you know what I mean? I have, or I talk to Ortiz, a.k.a. Monkey. That's what I call him, so that's his nickname. Uh, Ortiz, I talk to constantly. He just comes up to me. He goes, you want to vent? Go ahead. And I just do it. And he goes, you feel better? I go, yep. He goes, okay. You need people like that. And and I'm there for some people, too. They vent to me a lot. And there's some days, though, when they vent to me and I go, hey, I got my own problems going on, but every, <laughs> but... I keep that to myself because everybody needs somebody to vent to. You know what I mean? Someone that's not going to say anything back. Someone who's just going to let you go. Go off the chain and scream and yell and say whatever dumb stuff you want to say. Because what I've noticed for me is once I'm done screaming and yelling and saying whatever I'm saying, I feel better. And if I don't feel better, I have the people who I do vent to, I trust. And they will give me the good advice, and I know they will, because I trust them. And it's very, it's like three or four people, you know. Yeah, Eddie, it's impressive. You're, you're, I think you're about nine years younger than I am, but I struggle with all these things. I struggle with accepting yeah. myself still. I, I struggle with opening up and talking to people, and I'm out there talking and and trying to get other people to do it, and it's hard enough for myself. But I also find there's healing in helping others. And sometimes when I do that, it's for me in a way. And it's, you know, just listening to you talk, I'm learning a lot from you. And, and, you know, for you to be as young as you you are and and be able to do this stuff, you're going to help so many people, which I love. And uh, you know what? I tell all my buddies now I love them. I hang up. I hang up the phone. I tell them I love them. Yeah, same. Same. Same with me, yeah. You know, just getting rid of that stoic mentality. And how how do we encourage more men to stop, you know, to talk to your partner, to, when I played junior hockey, if you got caught holding your girlfriend's hand, it was $20 fine, right? And we were, and if you talked to your girlfriend about feelings, oh my goodness, you just got ridiculed Oh yeah, it was a no wrap. End. It was, oh yeah. Yeah, Div- yeah, yeah. Divorce hurts a too. hell of a lot harder than, than talking to my spouse. And as men, yeah. you know, do you have any advice for, for men out there or anything that, that can resonate with people for us to, to start talking and start talking to each other? Well, I I tell people that my grandfather, it took my grandfather until he was on his deathbed to tell my dad that he loves him. Yeah. And that meant the world to my dad, but also kind of hurt him. That's what my father 
now, still to this day, says he loves you to me. It says he's proud of me. You know, that actually all started when I finally went to Japan. He was like, oh, man, I'm proud of you. And then he was with it. But the old ways, is, is, look at what it's done to all of us. The old way of holding things in and then, and then exploding at the wrong time. Look what it's done to a lot of the men in the world. It's either God is locked up or God has bad habits. And then we can't be with a significant other because we don't know how to deal with things. So then we take it out on them. And then either some people get physical, some don't. You know what I mean? And the old way doesn't work anymore, man. It doesn't. Look what's going on. Why do we have to be depressed? Why? Who said that we have to do that? Who said that we have to beat ourselves up? Who says that we have to not talk about it or say to our friends, hey, man, I love you? Yeah, you know what I mean? I still get weirded out when I say it, but I say it because I know it's the right thing to do. Eddie, I love and you, man. <laughs> I love you, brother. You already know. <laughs> after, after Brody Lee passed away unexpectedly, that was it for a lot of us in our locker room. A lot of us in our locker room now are like, I love you, man. I'll see you next week. Sometimes I say to Mox, and Mox, he's, he's a stoic dude, but he'll, he'll whisper it under his, under his teeth, you know, in between his teeth. I'll be like, all right, Mox, I love you. He won't say it. I'll be like, hey, Mox, I'll see you next <laughs> week. Give, the, give your wife and the baby a hug and kiss from me. I love you. He'll go, all right, let me, let me <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, barely hear it. So, uh, yeah. yeah, but when I hear it, I hear it, and I go, I got you. But it's, I want people to know now that I love them because, God forbid, something happens, and I'm not here unexpectedly. I don't want anyone to ever say that I never said it to them or I never showed them that I loved them. I have fought for years showing anybody anything, and then... When I showed love to the wrong people, they turned on me and it just fueled my don't trust anybody, this, this, that, the third. But that's kid thinking in my eyes. That's kid thinking. And I got to grow up and I got to say I love you to the people who I love because, again, I don't want to, God forbid, something happens. I don't want them not to know that I truly do love them. Eddie, what would you tell that young man watching wrestling videos your 15, your 16-year-old self, knowing what you know now in, in, in your shoes right now, what would you tell him? What, what would your biggest gift to him be of knowledge? It will pass. It will pass. Whatever you're feeling, it will pass. If you keep moving forward, it will pass. It may not be when you want it to pass, but it will pass. And I, I think that's what a lot of people get stuck on is that they want that instant gratification and they want it to pass right away and they want to be, as I say in quotations, better right away. It's not going to happen right away, but it will pass when it's time. And I have faith in that. I have faith if I work, I would tell myself, younger self, you work on yourself, you focus on you, and you try to love yourself more and more every day. Whatever you're feeling or whatever you're going through will pass because it will. I love that. I've used that myself. I've talked to my kids about that. I've told my patients, you know, when you're feeling that worst kind of situation, when you're just feeling so awful with something you're worried about, and I'm able to mount the strength to say, all right, this feels like shit, 
but it's not always going to feel like this. Yeah. I, I know I'll feel better. Actually recognizing that it will pass helps me to start feeling better. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a friend of mine, Missy Sampson, uh, says this, and I don't think she knows that I know that she took it from the crow, but, you know, <laughs> she says it can't rain all the time. And it's the truth, you know. And uh, I'm also very lucky and blessed because uh, when they say I do in wrestling promos, uh, and I've said it before in other interviews, it's not a promo, it's my therapy. Because the character, again, air quotations, the character of Eddie Kingston's me at 17 years old. So I just go, what did I do back in the day when I was 17? Or what would I say or act or, you know what I mean? And then I just let it out. I spit everything out that's in me from because I get in that mental state. Trust me, it takes me a minute. We'll be backstage and everyone's like, hey, Eddie, this and that. And I'd be like, everyone, get away from me. Give me five minutes because I'm in this zone of being 17 years old and I don't even know who I am right now. So let me get outside and have a breather. And once I have the breather, I'm like, okay, I'm back. But yeah, it's a, a very big therapy session, pro wrestling for me, whether talking on the microphone or wrestling. I get all that energy out of me because I've also learned over the years depression, any feeling, depression, rage, even happiness, sadness, whatever, it's all energy. So I got to do something with that energy or it's just going to sit there and fester. So that's why I do Muay Thai. That's why I have a go. I can't, can't believe I'm even saying this because I never thought I would do it, but I have a garage filled with weights and, and an assault bike and everything like that. So that also helps. I tell people, whatever we're going through, it's energy. Go run, go walk, do push-ups, squats, do something. Because I'm telling you, once you tire yourself out, you won't have time to think. You take on a a persona, right, when you're <laughs> yeah. when you're out there. And I think it seems like they become more and more authentic, more and more a real representation of who you are. And sometimes it's the more sensitive things about yourself, the stuff you don't like, that then becomes the, the trash talk when you're out there. Yeah. Does that hurt? No. No, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt at all because I know what it is. And also, a lot of times, I tell guys to say it. I'll tell guys to say certain things because I know other people will relate to it. Other people will relate to someone making fun of them for whatever it is. And what does that you know what say? I mean? Does that mean that you've managed it, that you can, you can take that on the chin because you're, you're taking it for other people because they can, they can benefit from it, but it doesn't, no. it doesn't soak in, it doesn't hurt anymore? No, it... it, it in wrestling, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt because I'm trying to get the people to come with me on a story. So if they feel it with me, they're going to feel the story. And I want them to, I want people to escape. Pro wrestling was an escape for me mentally, away from everything. So maybe there's one person there that needs this escape. So let's go. I'll do it for you. If there's, if there's one person, I'm happy about it. Now, outside of wrestling, I, got, I shut it off. I try to ignore it because, yeah, it can still get to me. Yeah. So, like, when I played hockey inside the boards, that's where I felt safest. That's yes. where I felt good. That's where all my anxiety, it all went away. That, that's mm -hmm. where it was. Do you find that in wrestling? Once you get in the ring, it just, that's where you feel the best. You feel the safest. Yeah. I feel like it's almost like an out-of-body experience when I'm in the ring because I won't, I'll remember stuff. 
But when I go think about it, it's like I'm watching myself. When I think about it, try to remember it. It's a weird out-of-body experience, but nothing can hurt me in the ring. If something happened with me and an ex-girlfriend or a girlfriend at the time we're fighting, doesn't matter. I was depressed all week, didn't eat right, didn't work out, doesn't matter. Uh, my boss is on my ass, whatever, 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 doesn't matter. All that goes away because all that matters is what I do in the ring. Because those people that are paid to see that show, whether me or not, it doesn't matter. They came to see a show. They don't care what you're going through that day. And my job is also to get them not to care about what they went through that day. And then I'll work on myself afterwards. So it's, again, it's that thing of I have more love to give than that to take. You know what I mean? Again, just more things I got to work on, and I'm okay with that because I'm, I'm alive another day to do it. I love the story about it It was a tryout, but it was, you didn't really know it was a tryout. And, and then you, you met with success after a very long slog. But that, that point where you were going to quit. Yeah. Man. And then your brother, can you talk about that? What was that like? And what, how do you reflect on that time? Uh, it was just I was, I was tired. I was over it. You know what I mean? I was beating myself up. Uh, I was like, yep, I'm a waste. Knew what was going to happen. Whatever, let me disappear. Let me get my welder's license again, move to Alaska, and just disappear. That's That, that was my game plan. Uh, my brother just knows me. You know, he's my brother. He's my blood. My little brother knows me, and he knows what drives me. And he knew once he said that that I wasn't going anywhere because we all believe in family. Like you said, my home life early on, we believe in family. We believe in sticking in, sticking with each other through thick and thin, man. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, they always taught me you could choose your friends but not your family, so you got to watch them. Yeah, so when he did that, he knew what he was doing because I saw him smiling as we pulled away. I was like, okay, he, he got me. Yeah. So, Except no, at Thanksgiving they, and Christmas. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I'm so happy he did that because, again, that, that's another turning point in my life. If he didn't say that, I would have I left. Because then I would have been like, well, I got to leave now. I said it. You know, I already put myself in this corner. So now I have to do it. But, yeah, my nephews definitely, uh, uh, all, all the kids in my family, are, without a shadow of a doubt, uh, a driving force. My uh, my little goddaughter, Abby, is another one who's who is a motivation for me as well. Kids motivate me because... I don't know, man. I, I just remember being a little kid going to Madison Square Garden, and if any wrestler even looked at me or I thought looked at me, I was over the moon happy. So whenever I see a kid in the audience or I see a kid asking for a picture or something, yeah, I could be really tired. I could be stinky. Could be getting off an eight-hour flight, not want, you know, just wanting to... Maybe I have a 5 a.m. flight, so maybe I have two hours of sleep to go, but if it's a kid, man, I got to stop because... They're going to remember that, you know, and I hope they remember it positively. You know what I mean? So that is. Eddie, to me, you're an inspiration. Honestly, I've absolutely loved talking to you. And I Thank know you. you are in your journey where you and Corey have a lot uh, of similarities in, in your experience. I'm wondering, and I don't mean to speak for you, Corey. No, but it's amazing what sport, Diane. It's like we all have so many things in common. We're just yeah. people, but go on, please. No, well, yeah. um, I, I was going to ask you because I personally feel you have so many 
achievements. But when you look back now, and I know you're still not that old, what's your greatest achievement? Uh, the day I gave my mother my contract. And she smiled and, and started cursing and yelling in Spanish that I did it. And then afterwards, my mother being my mother, afterwards she goes, well, now you have more work to do. Because she goes, you finally got this after 20 years, but now you got to prove that you that you got it. And I was like, yeah, Ma, I got you. I started laughing. I said, of course you would say that. She's a sports mom, just like my dad's a sports dad. Yeah, you did good today, but you only went one for four. You know what I mean? It's, uh, they're, they're very motivational, and they want me to do better, and they understand this is not the end. You know what I mean? This is honestly just a new beginning, a new chapter to to my story as as a human being. Not just a man in pro wrestling, but as a human being. The most important part for people to understand this is that I'm not some special guru or somebody that has it all figured out. Because I don't. And that every day is truly a struggle. Because I, but I embrace that instead of run away from it. Because when you run away from that struggle, all you're really doing is hurting yourself. And then you hurt yourself, and then in turn, you hate, you hurt the ones that you love by doing that as well. So I just want people to understand that it's an everyday struggle. I'm not perfect. And if I can continue moving forward, why can't everybody? And I just hope people just get that and understand that, that, yeah, no matter how hard it is, I have to move forward and I have to see another day because 24 hours from now, there's another day for me to get better. Not to get worse, because a lot of people like to say I could get better or worse. No, there's no worse. It's either you get better or you stay the same. That's the way I look at it. You know what I mean? So I just hope people understand that, that it's an everyday struggle, but moving forward is key. This is why it's so great to talk to athletes, because this is what you guys do, right? Yeah. You're a constant work in pro progress, right? How do I get better? How do I move forward? How do I move forward? Uh, absolutely inspirational to talk to you, Eddie. Thank you so much. No, thank you, guys. I, I was a little nervous and worried, but thank you, guys. Oh, you're, I've learned so much today, Eddie. Um, I appreciate it. You know what? And uh, you got a friend here for life, so... <laughs> Ah, we love you. Yeah, we love you. Yeah, I love amazing. you guys. Let's, let's keep it going, man. I hope whoever listens just, you know, it helps. I hope it helps. That's it. <laughs>